Welcome to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Sam Abbott, registered dietitian nutritionist and PCOS nutrition expert. I'm here to help you learn how to manage PCOS and support your hormones while also having a healthy relationship with food in your body. You can improve PCOS symptoms and labs without dieting. Get ready to feel better with PCOS and leave diet culture in the rearview mirror. Welcome to another episode of the Nourish with PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Sam. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate you being a listener. I'm really excited today to chat about the new international evidence-based guidelines for the assessment and management of PCOS. If you're not familiar with this document, it is basically the formal guidelines for managing PCOS. It's a document that's reviewed um, every five years. Also, I'm just going to give this caveat. If you hear my dogs in the background, they are both wandering around. Normally, I have a podcast day. They go to daycare. But since I had COVID and could not get out of bed for a week, I am so behind. And so they're here recording with me on a day where I don't normally record podcast episodes. So I apologize in advance. Um I said that because right when I was talking, one of my dogs, Winnie, was just like standing at her water bowl and her little tag like makes a loud sound when she's getting water. Um, but anyway, I'm going to be talking about the new guidelines for PCOS. This is a document that's updated every five years. A lot of big organizations related to reproduction or endocrinology are involved in the creation of these guidelines. I was very privileged to be able to sit on a panel that gave formal feedback about the guidelines before they were published. Everything I'm going to discuss um, in this podcast episode is my own personal opinion. It's not a reflection of the organization that I'm a part of that was able to review the guidelines. Um, Just my viewpoint and thoughts and opinions being a weight-inclusive provider who has experience working with eating disorders. So this guideline is available to you. It's a PDF document. It is pretty big. It's like over 250 pages. But if you wanted to download a copy and save it, you know, you're more than welcome to do that. It is considered to be the formal document for PCOS recommendations. So it's a reference for your physician. It's something that you can take with you to a doctor's appointment or print out a specific page and be like, well, this is what it says in the guidelines. There is a little bit of, you know, a discussion about how is this information going to trickle down to healthcare providers to make sure that everyone is up to date on the new recommendations. So um, they just came out. Um, so it might be something that you you want to have a copy of. I personally sent a copy of it to um, Office Max and got it printed out with a spiral binding. And I'll just keep it as reference until five years later. Um, so I wanted to go through some highlights, some things that change, some things that aren't new, but that I thought you should be aware of. Um, I also wanted to let you know that 
I have my PCOS uh, 101 masterclass that's just kind of like everything you should know after you're diagnosed. And some of this is in there, but I go into stuff in a lot more depth. So if you're interested in learning more and you don't want to go through a 250-page medical document, that masterclass is available for you. So let's just jump into some things that I wanted to make sure you were aware of. Something that is new is that they updated the diagnostic criteria for PCOS. It's basically the same. They just added a little component to it. So in the old criteria, there are three pieces of diagnostic criteria, and somebody only had to meet two in order to be diagnosed with PCOS. So the first was irregular or missing periods. The second was polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. And then the third was elevated androgens, either with um, having signs and symptoms of elevated androgens, the primary one being hirsutism or excessive hair growth, or um, actually having labs of elevated androgens. So that all is staying the same. The only difference is the polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. That can either be that piece of criteria or somebody could have an elevated AMH instead. That's your anti-malarian hormone. Um, AMH is often high in PCOS because people have a collection of these follicles um, where your body is like trying to ovulate and it can't. And so this makes your... um, your egg reserves higher and that's where your AMH comes from. So if you had labs done and your AMH was high, you wouldn't need to have an ultrasound. You actually don't even need to have an ultrasound anyway, technically, with this diagnostic criteria. You know, if you had irregular or missing cycles and elevated androgens, technically that is enough to diagnose PCOS. But if you had an AMH, like you wouldn't get an ultrasound unless your doctor felt like there was another reason to have an ultrasound. I I do want to mention too, PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So other things need to be ruled out before you can have that diagnosis. Something I was actually disappointed in um, and something I realized by being on this panel is that you, you can give feedback that is actually credible evidence-based feedback and it doesn't mean it's going to be included and that was a little disappointing. There um, was a part at the beginning of the document where they did talk about the specific different medical conditions that should be excluded before a PCOS diagnosis is made and I made a formal recommendation to add um, hypothalamic amenorrhea to that list because A symptom of um, hypothalamic amenorrhea is missing cycles, and we do see clients who are misdiagnosed with PCOS who actually have HA, and I think this actually goes back to wellness culture and healthism because most people who have HA, they're over-exercising and under-eating, and when I say over-exercising and under-eating, I mean Somebody could have HA and be consuming 15 or 1600 calories a day, or they could have a running copy. Like they're just exercising too much for their body. 
um, or under eating, not in the way that we think of under eating, but something that is truly undernourishing your body. And this is like a medical condition that I feel like is so underdiagnosed. Um, and I see this sometimes with my clients. And it was really disappointing that that was not that suggestion was not included in the guidelines from what I saw when I was looking over them. So update to the diagnostic criteria. Um, another big change that I was so happy to see is that um, now there is a formal recommendation that an oral glucose tolerance test, a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test is the most accurate test for assessing insulin resistance in PCOS and that's independent of BMI. Um, in the past, usually doctors have just checked a fasting blood sugar. Sometimes doctors check an A1C. And if those numbers are within normal limits, um, my clients have been told they don't have insulin resistance when really those labs are a poor um, poor assessor of insulin resistance. And that is discussed in this document. It actually... There's actually even a line that says like an A1C doesn't rule out like insulin resistance and has significantly reduced accuracy. I think this is the most significant, you know, if you don't have, if you don't know if you have insulin resistance, if you have like an elevated A1C already, I don't necessarily think it's necessary to continue to get an oral glucose tolerance test. Um, but this is some knowledge where you can start a conversation with your doctor. Um, information about sleep apnea and that everybody with PCOS should be screened for symptoms of sleep apnea independent of BMI. I'm really glad that like there is a theme in this document of like these things need to be looked at and evaluated independent of BMI because we see insulin resistance occurs independent of BMI. Sleep apnea occurs independent of BMI. Inflammation occurs independent of BMI. And I, it's so unfortunate when I'm working with somebody and they're like, well, my doctor wouldn't test for that because they said I'm in a smaller body. Um, so that is in this document. Something else I thought was interesting that I just wanted to point out is a mention that fathers and brothers of people with PCOS may have an increased prevalence of metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, and hypertension. I'm glad this is becoming more of the conversation that PCOS doesn't just affect women with PCOS or people born with a uterus. Like this is, this could be something that affects everyone. From a nutrition and lifestyle perspective, just wanted to point out no recommendation in here to eliminate gluten and dairy. Oh, this recommendation just grates on my last nerves. If you're somebody who feels like Cutting out gluten or dairy has helped you. I'm not dismissing that. This is there's just no research to support either one of those recommendations being like a blanket recommendation for PCOS. Also, states in here, there's not a recommendation that like one specific type of exercise is optimal for PCOS or that um, we should eliminate a specific type of exercise. So that's something important to note too. 
On the reproductive front, uh, there is a recommendation if you're somebody who is exploring fertility treatments that letrozole should be used as a first-line treatment um, for infertility, especially, you know, specifically instead of Clomid. So let's talk about like some interesting things that... I feel like this document is moving in the right direction and acknowledging like weight bias and eating disorders and poor body image with PCOS, but I feel like they really missed the mark. And um, I just wanted to share some of my thoughts around that. So there are, it's mentioned several times throughout the document that your healthcare providers should ask for your permission before you're weighed. There's information about eating disorders in here and screening for eating disorders. So some things that I felt like were a little problematic. This this document also talks about weight stigma all throughout the document. Um, They make a point to say they're not going to use the O word, obesity, because they feel like it's stigmatizing. I think that that's great. However, this whole document is very weight-centric, like In so many different sections, they bring it back to weight. And instead of using the O word, they just reference BMI. And like, yes, the O word is stigmatizing. But when we talk about weight stigma, it's really the focus on weight. So it it doesn't matter that you didn't use the O word if you're going to continue to make everything very weight centric. Just to give you a little bit of backstory, you know, BMI was never intended to be used as a health indicator. It was created by a mathematician slash astrologer who was actually believed in eugenics. It's incredibly problematic. I have a blog post about it. There's a really great maintenance phase podcast episode about it. So BMI, we know, is already BS. It's also a very poor indicator of health outcomes. And not just talking about muscle mass. I A lot of times when I hear people talking about BMI and health indicators, they're like, well, you can be more muscular and then you're heavier and blah, blah, blah. But even independent of that, it's a poor indicator of health. Um, another thing is that the pharmaceutical industry, specifically drug makers who make quote unquote anti-obesity medication or weight loss medication, they heavily influenced obesity becoming a medical condition. And actually, there was like a formal um, recommendation from the, I forget the name of the healthcare organization for physicians. They did not believe there was enough research to support obesity becoming a medical condition. And because of the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, this came into effect anyway. If you want to actually go through, <laughs> have a better explanation of that. Sorry, I'm a little flustered with my dogs walking around. Um, definitely the maintenance phase also has a really great episode about that as well. I think it's called like the quote unquote obesity epidemic. Um, but anyway, When we talk about weight stigma, these are like important parts of the conversation. And so I think when you are referencing BMI or treating weight as a disease, that is part of weight stigma. 
And like the definition of weight stigma is weight stigma refers to discriminatory acts and ideologies targeted towards individuals because of their weight and size. Ideologies is one word. And I think that this idea that focusing healthcare treatment on weight loss when we see in practice that this causes harm and for most people is ineffective, that is part of weight stigma. And so you have a document that is like just talking over and over again about weight stigma, but then the whole document is weight centric. It's like, hello, the call is coming from inside the house. And so that was the most disappointing part of this document. Another thing that was really disappointing to me was that when I first was reading it in one of the very beginning sections, it talks about wanting to use gender inclusive language. And we know that when we respect gender identity, people have better health outcomes and it is harmful to health when we do not take that into consideration. So I see this thing about gender inclusive language and I'm like, well, this is great. And they do give an explanation of like, we use gender inclusive language where we feel like it's appropriate. And then if we feel like from a clinical standpoint, using the word woman is necessary, that's what we do. And I'm like, okay, this is a good first step because I work with a lot of people who have different gender identities and their health is harmed so much when they are working with a healthcare provider that does not respect that. And so I'm like, this is good for this document. And I literally am reading and like every section is like woman with PCOS, woman with PCOS, woman with PCOS. And like it would have not, people probably wouldn't have thought twice if you had just written like people with, person with PCOS, people with PCOS. And I was just like, I felt like it was a little performative to be completely honest. Like if you're going to make an effort to be inclusive, then make the effort. Don't say you're going to make the effort and then you don't. And that was part of the feedback that I gave for edits, which didn't really do much there. So I feel like those were the things that really stood out to me of things being disappointed about, you know, there's a section about eating disorders, but again, if you have a document where every single section is like, and also you need to lose weight, and also um, being fat is horrible for your PCOS, like, of course, that is going to lead into eating disorders. And I really, I wish that not just making a sentence telling people to do it, I wish like the actual advice in this document was more supportive of people in all bodies. I do think a lot of the language in here, like it's promising and I feel optimistic, but it really missed the mark. So I'm glad there's updated information in here about like 
pharmaceuticals and lab testing and things like that. But this is one piece that I feel like we we still really need to work on. So that is everything um, that I wanted to discuss about this document. Again, it's a public document. Anybody can download it. Um, I'll link it in the show notes for you. And um, like I said, I have my PCOS 101 masterclass. If you just want me to talk you through like some of the important things to know when you're diagnosed, um, that masterclass is not going over these recommendations. It's more just going over like the basics of what PCOS is and like how it's treated. A lot of times I work with um, people who they're not ready for working with a dietitian because they feel like they don't even know enough about their PCOS to know what to be working on, which is very understandable. That's why I created that masterclass. Um, Well, I hope this podcast episode has been really helpful. I was really grateful to be included on that panel to review these documents. I think it was a great experience. It definitely brushed up my (laughs) research skills. Of course, when we are in school becoming a dietitian, we have to take classes about reading research. Um, But digging through the studies to give feedback on the sections where I was giving feedback on was um, a great refresher there. All right. Well, I appreciate you tuning in and I hope you have an awesome day. Thanks for listening to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe so you can catch new episodes. I'd also be so grateful if you left a review and rating for the pod as well. See you next Wednesday.